Welcome back to the Year podcast after our summer break. I hope you had a fabulous summer wherever you spent it. We had a great time here in Poland and we spent our time writing the script for our new painting animation film, The Peasants, which is an adaptation of the Nobel Prize winning novel by Vladislav Raymond. It is an epic story set in a peasant village in 19th century Poland and the central character is an independent spirited young woman clashing against the confines of the society around her. This month's podcast is also about a woman's struggle, her struggle to forge a better life for herself than the one that fate had set out for her, set against the backdrop of the tumultuous events of the Great War and its aftermath. So I hope you enjoy episode 11, The Great War Grants Fionn the Firewoman a New Life. To learn to read is to light a fire. Victor Hugo. Fionn missed the war. According to the newspapers, she should feel grateful for the coming of peace. But for her, the violence had only begun with the end of war. Her husband, Gareth, had come back from war a broken man. When war had broken out and there was a call for volunteers, she had pleaded with him not to join up. He was already 33 years old, his lungs were in a bad state and they had a 15-year-old daughter. But every man in the village between 18 and 35 had signed up and Gareth had never been one to go against the flow. So he left. Fionn was separated from Gareth for the first time in her adult life and she felt compelled to write to him. Unfortunately, the education drive that had spread through most of the South Wales mining communities had largely passed the Windsor colliery by, so neither Fionn nor Gareth were much good at reading and writing. In 1914, the week after Gareth left with the village regiment for France, Fionn had signed up for an adult literacy course in Pontypridd. She was determined that if Gareth was going to put his life on the line fighting for king and country, then she would make sure that he felt supported by her and received regular letters from home. It had been at one of these literacy classes that she had met Gwen. Gwen was uh, applying to be a firewoman at the Nantgau Colliery Fire Service. She wanted to improve her reading and writing so that she could pass the written part of the test, as apparently there was more to being a fireman than wielding hosepipes and axes. Women were starting to be recruited into various jobs that had previously been exclusively held by men. In Fionn's area, it was mainly work in the mines. The mine owners had actually been in favour of their workers volunteering for the war until they realised that this had serious consequences for the colliery's output. It seemed that there were men in the government who were worried about the same thing, and some of the more skilled and specialist village volunteers were ordered by the army to return to South Wales and resume their duties in the mines. Gareth, not having a special skill set, was not one of those forced to return. Even with these returnees, the mines needed female labour, and a fair few miners' wives filled in for their husbands. Fionn was not one of these. Being the daughter of a miner and the wife of one was quite enough. There were other village women, the ones without children, who were travelling down the valleys to Newport to work in the munition factories, but that wasn't an option for her either. One of the reasons Fionn wouldn't consider working down the mines was because of the big pit fire that she had witnessed as a child. The memories of it still haunted her. She wished that she could have helped the miners who died on that day, 
No, she wouldn't go down a mine as a miner, but she could go down one if she was to save lives. This gave her the idea to become a firewoman like Gwen. She tracked down Gwen at the Nantgal Colliery Fire Service. Gwen taught Fionn through all her duties, the training she was given, and by the end of her visit, Fionn was keen to become a firewoman too. The next day she visited the Kafili Fire Service and found that they too were willing to take on female applicants given the shortage of male ones. Theon started her employment in the Kafili Fire Service on the 29th of April 1915. She worked a 12-hour shift six days a week. Her daughter was already 16 at this point and kept pestering Theon to be allowed to get a job in Newport in the munitions factory along with her two friends. Fionn wasn't keen, but her mother intervened on her granddaughter's behalf, telling Fionn it was time to let her go, and so she did. With her daughter gone, the fire service became the fulcrum of Fionn's life. In her three years there, she had been called to 12 house fires, one pit fire, and been in support at two shaft rescues. But in December 1918, before even the men that had survived the war returned from the front, she was dismissed without severance pay. She had been forced back into the home, a home into which a man, who from the outside was Gareth, had arrived. For four years she had barely heard from him. All that she knew was that his lungs had been badly affected by German gas and he couldn't go back down the pits. The options in Abertridor were limited. It was a one-industry town. Fionn encouraged Gareth to apply for the Kafili Fire Service, telling him how much she had enjoyed it, and she reasoned that as she knew the fire chief well, she could put in a good word for him. This had been the cause of the first explosion. There had been a few arguments in the course of their marriage, but Gareth had never hit her. Maybe he had held her wrists or grabbed at her, but nothing that could have even remotely forewarned her to expect what happened that night. Gareth just got up from the kitchen table and smashed her full in the face. Through blood-matted hair, it had taken her a moment to focus on him and on what he was saying. He was accusing her of having an affair with the fire chief, telling her, who the fuck does she think she was to go trotting around on a fire truck with other men like some scarlet whore? The shock of it was worse than the pain. For days after, she had hidden herself away inside the house, refusing even to see her mother. Gareth had apologised the next day, saying that he didn't really recall the event. She asked him if he had been drinking. He said he'd only been drinking tea, that's all. But she knew that he was lying. She had asked him if it had something to do with the war. He told her that he did have bad dreams, but he didn't want to talk about them. A month passed uneventfully, but after the events of that night, she felt that she was living on a perpetual knife edge. Gareth didn't go out to look for work, and she was too scared to offer up any more suggestions of places that he might try. He just sat at home, going out only to collect his meagre war pension. By now, their daughter had moved to London, together with some girls that she had met in the munitions factory. They had decided to try their luck in the capital. She had quickly found work and now paid her own way, but still, Gareth's pension didn't stretch very far. It was barely half of what Fionn had been earning when she worked at the fire station. The next time he came at her, it was because she served him tea that was too cold. On that occasion, he had dragged her around the kitchen floor by her hair, raving and screaming at her as he did. Thereafter, the incidents became more and more frequent. When he threatened her with a knife over the fact that she received a letter that he couldn't read and that she could, she knew that something had to be done. She had retreated to the bedroom 
leaving the kitchen, the main room in the house, her room to him. Her nerves were all a jitter until she heard the front door slam. He was out of the house. And then it was as if her body decided for her. With no conscious decision to go, she found herself methodically packing her bag. Shortly thereafter, she found that she was heading off down the high street in the opposite direction from the pub. It was 10 p.m., too late to get the bus into Caffili, but the night was clear, if a little cold. He would discover that she had gone in one hour, and then maybe he would try looking for her, or maybe he wouldn't, but by then she would be safely at Gwen's house. She knew that his behaviour was because of the war, but he had refused to talk to her about it or to seek any kind of help, and now she had to help herself. It was Gwen who had come up with the idea, and Gwen who had gone along with her, as much to make sure that she actually went as to provide moral support. The Society for the Overseas Settlement of British Women had set up office in a back room at Cardiff Town Hall. They were looking for single women to go and be wives to the colonists. Despite the war dead, Australia and New Zealand still didn't have enough women for the men of their countries, while Britain had finished the war with a two million surplus of women of marriageable age over men. Through the whole process, Fionn was terrified that she would be found out. She had lied to the immigration board that she was a war widow. When the woman who was questioning her asked her why her papers didn't show this, she just said that she had never gone to update them after she received the news of her husband's death. Fionn was sure that they would double-check and berated herself for letting Gwen talk her into this. She imagined that the authorities would find out and she would be locked up, and after that she would be sent back to her husband and his rage at what she had tried to do would be such that he would kill her. She had this image of Gareth standing over her in the kitchen that had been the fulcrum of her adult life, a saucepan in his hand and her lying on the stone floor, her matted hair soaking into a puddle of her own blood. She wondered what her mother would do. Her mother, despite being a hair's breadth under five foot tall, was tougher than she looked. She could well imagine her finding a way to poison Gareth before the police managed to lock him up. And her daughter? She was surprised at how little she could imagine her daughter's reaction to the news. The only image in her head was of her daughter in her fashionable London knee-length skirt and her made-up face, raising her pencilled eyebrows at the news, more surprised than sad. But the immigration board seemed merely a rubber stamp, a superficial health check, and then they bundled her onto a ship. On the 23rd of July 1919, her ship set sail for Australia. On the 14th of September, the boat landed in Darwin, into a world that bore no resemblance to the small, sharp, grey valleys that had, till then, been the complete extent of Fionn's world. A further four weeks of travelling by bus, and then by horse and carriage, followed, before she finally arrived at her allotted destination in Tennant Creek, a cattle ranching town in the centre of the Northern Territories. When the mayor learned that she had some experience as a firewoman, he decided that as well as being the town's nurse, she would also be the fire chief for the town. In Tennant Creek, she felt useful. She received news from home via Gwen. Two months after she had left, her husband Gareth had died in a fire in their home, in her kitchen. It had happened one night after Gareth had been in the pub. He had been in there until closing time, and the landlord had reported that he hadn't been in a good shape when he left. Her former boss, the fire chief of Caffili, said that it looked like paper in the waste paper bin had caught light, probably while Gareth was unconscious. 
Theon had never asked Gareth about the letters she had sent him every week during the war. And he had never brought the topic up. He had certainly never thanked her for them, but she had seen that he had kept them, neatly ordered and hidden in amongst his army gear that he kept locked in a chest in their bedroom. On hearing the news of his death, Theon had a vivid image of Gareth sitting drunk in the kitchen and setting light to the letters. She felt sad, but it was a distant feeling, as distant as her damp valley house was from the scorched earth world that she now lived in. Theon had found herself the recipient of a reasonable amount of discreet male attention from the moment that she arrived in town. These approaches multiplied after she had saved one of the local barns from being burnt down during carving season. The folk out here were practical people, they had to be, and the knowledge that a woman could save something as valuable as a barn full of cows was something of an aphrodisiac to the tough ranchers of the region. However, she had made it clear to all that she was not going to give up being a nurse and fire chief to the town and that weeded out a fair few who were looking for a woman to join them out on their vast cattle ranches. But in time there was a man who liked her and whom she liked back and who accepted her with her jobs and so three days before her 35th birthday, Fionn the firewoman married again. When she became pregnant at the age of 36, it was almost 20 years to the day since she had become pregnant with her daughter, and she really felt like she was a woman who had lived twice. The Great War had ended her old life and given her new life. Afterward, the Great War is often seen as a turning point for women's rights, and for some women it was. However, while women, two million of them, did get to prove that they could do a range of work during the war that they had formerly been excluded from, they were paid half or even a third of the amount men were paid for doing the same jobs, and they were promptly sacked without benefits at the outbreak of peace. Women were expected to retreat back into the home. This could be particularly hard on single women. There were 1,800,000 more women than men in the 18 to 35 age group, many of whom had both poor employment prospects and poor marriage prospects, and who still didn't even get the vote. The 1918 Representation of the People Act only enfranchised women householders over 30. Half the women in Great Britain, ironically the half that included the vast majority of the women who had actually been doing the work in place of the men during the war effort, were still denied the right to vote. The next podcast will be the last instalment of the year. And for that, we will be with the irrepressible Albert Einstein, who throughout the four years that the human world around him was narrowly focused on ripping itself apart, was continuing to revolutionize our understanding of the cosmos. And a British scientist was busy actually looking into the cosmos to find practical evidence for Einstein's theories. So I invite you at the start of November to join me in leaving your earthly cares behind you and journeying into the unknown for the final episode of the year.